hello, hello. Welcome back to Leading Women in Tech. I am really excited about today's podcast. It is possibly one of the longest guest episodes I've recorded. It's not that long, um, but I do try and keep these around 30 minutes long. But today's guest, I just I didn't want to shut her up. And actually, we finished recording and then we chat for another hour and a half. And I kind of wish I'd recorded that for you all as well. So many interesting topics not to mention a couple of things that the pair of us both experienced personally. But without further ado, let me introduce today's guest around the talking all about her without telling you who I am talking about. I am talking about the integral development coach, Debbie Danon. Uh, She is an expert facilitator, inclusion specialist. She's based in London, UK. And she is recognized for her work in emotional intelligence, um, knowledge, and she says, total unshockability. And I, I think as you listen to her, you're kind of going to see where that comes from. She is passionate about helping leaders produce forward-thinking, mission-driven organizations. And one of the ways she does that is by cultivating high performance from a perspective of belonging and well-being. So that if we're in the right place, we can then take those hard, uncomfortable steps to create cultures where all people are in the right place. But we have to do that work ourselves. And we spent quite a lot of time, I'm just looking at my notes, like I've written so many notes from today's conversation. We spent quite a lot of time talking about what we need to do first so that we're then able to be what she refers to as somebody with rebel courage, to having the courage to do that uncomfortable work. If we're not in the right place in the first place, we can't do that work. Debbie is a somatic coach. She's an anti-oppressive leadership best practice specialist. And actually, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to get her on the show. We didn't talk as long about anti-oppressive behaviours as I had hoped, but I think the conversation was just so wonderful that you're going to get so much value out of this anyway. She's been practising as a coach for the last six years now, I think. And I think you will find that everything she shares with you is echoing a lot of what I say, but coming at it from a very different perspective and the level of depth because of her specialism that I've not touched on before, which is why I think we had such a great conversation. So without further ado, let's get this week's guest and also supporter of the podcast this week. Um, for that, I'm incredibly grateful. Without people supporting this podcast, it would not be here. It wouldn't be the free resource that it is. So without further ado, let's get Debbie Danon onto the show. Welcome to the Leading Women in Tech podcast, the show that celebrates women in technology leadership. I'm your host, Tony Collis, and this podcast is the result of my passion for building better tech by diversifying the leadership of the technology sector. Join me on this journey as I discuss all things leadership, what it takes to be innovative, breaking through the glass ceiling, be a great leader, and how to navigate the unique experiences we face as women in tech. So sit back, grab your headphones, and get ready to be inspired to become a better leader. Welcome to the show, Debbie. It is fabulous to have you here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too, Tony. I'm so excited to get into this with you. Yeah, you're one of these coaches that when I met you, I was like, oh, you're you're like me. <laughs> we need more people like this in the world. But let's give everybody else that background. Um, can you share with us your career journey, the highlights, lowlights? I love this conf- this question that I ask everybody. And then why you're passionate about the work you do today as you help people navigate the various narratives we experience at work. Yeah, Tony, I felt that affinity as well. I think, um, you know, coming into this conversation, I was thinking about, you know, h- how I got here. I am, I was not a rebel, Tony, I have to say. 
I was the person voted at school the most likely to keep in touch with her teachers. And I can tell you that did in <laughs> fact happen. I did in <laughs> fact keep in touch with my teachers. So you can imagine that I did not relate to this world rebel until mm -hmm. about three or four years ago when I realized that it's been the theme that has gone through my life. But it's just that I think we need to reclaim this word rebel and do mm. something new with it. So let me tell you a bit about where I came from. So I'm first generation born in the UK, but my parents are Turkish Jews from Istanbul. So they're like, minorities within a minority and growing up there weren't many people like me so I guess I kind of got into education and sharing with people just by basically needing to explain to people why I didn't celebrate Christmas and do you speak Turkish or do you speak Jewish it's like oh okay wait nationality <laughs> religion let me mm -hmm. so I had to get super clear on that stuff for myself and share it with others and actually I took a lot of joy in that there were moments of kind of uh, edginess and maybe some kind of low-level uh, anti-Semitism that I experienced, some low-level kind of uh, xenophobia. Mm. But really, I, I kind of owned it from quite a young age. And I guess that's always given me a real interest in in inclusion and who belongs and who doesn't belong and who gets to say who belongs. That's always been a kind of lifelong theme for me. I ended up studying uh, theology and religious studies, which I like to say is a value for money degree because you learn history and psychology and, you know, anthropology and languages. I learned biblical Hebrew for three years. Uh, at the same time, I was a Jewish youth worker. So I was, I learned a lot of the principles that I take into businesses now from uh, leading groups of younger people than me um, with paper and string and Maltesers. Like that's where I learned <laughs> a lot of the like, you know, we learned about storming, norming, conforming. We learned mm. about a lot of the principles of leading with somebody, you know, not interrupting somebody or undermining mm. somebody in front of other people, you know, really maintaining our own dignity and the dignity of those we work with. That was a kind of core principle and leading by example, leading in such a mm. way as you would want other people to follow you. So that was kind of going on in my, in my early adulthood. I ended up working uh, not as a rabbi, as everyone said, oh, you're studying theology, you're going to be a rabbi. I was like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> um, that's not the plan. Um, I ended up working for, uh, as I was one of the co-founding members of an interfaith organization that was seeking to bring together young people from schools where they, you know, single faith schools where they only met people who were to some degree like them. And uh, through that, I really learned about holding difficult conversations. How do we hold these conversations that society deems to be fringe, that society deems to be hot potatoes? And actually, you know, they are edgy, they are difficult, but they're also so refreshing when we actually have them rather than avoid them. And when we respect the other person's dignity, even if we really believe that, you know, what they're saying doesn't vibe for us or that it's even wrong, how can we stay in that conversation rather than running for the exit? So I led that with young people. I led that with teachers. And then I developed faith awareness training for businesses at the very beginning of what we now know as DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But we didn't really have a lot of the language um, for that. And also, I guess, even in the kind of gender and race-related efforts, there wasn't really much chat about mm. faith. Faith was sort of fringe, and it still is. I think it's still an area that we need to, to integrate. From there, after seven years in the charity space, I went to work for a leadership consultancy, developing leadership talent pathways for big companies like Accenture and Deloitte and Clifford Chance and Vodafone. And suddenly I was like, you have what budget? Sorry, I've been working with paper and string all these years. Okay, <laughs> we can do something with this. Okay. And also I guess I just realized that these organizations have such big goals in terms of, you know, there's a lot of great people in there who really want to equip people to live values-led 
uh, lives yeah. and be leaders, leaders that are led by values. But also I saw that sometimes it was kind of an unrealistic expectation because people weren't being trained in the behaviors and in the self-awareness to be able to live out those values, right? Like it's not fair to say to someone, hey, you need to show integrity. And it's like, well, what happens under pressure when we when we're actually being told you have to deliver this in this way and it doesn't agree with our integrity are we being given the permission to speak up in the culture mm. are we being given the skills and the tools to be able to hold that integrity maybe in conflict with another value which might be you know delivering excellent customer experience you know there's there's so much there that kind of was glossed over yeah and i i completely understood it because you know you know, bottom line, business first. But if we don't address these things, then of course we end up with blowouts, with disagreements, with drama in teams, with, um, you know, with, with dropping the ball for clients too. And, or, or finding that we're too far down the road and we end up with, uh, I don't know, lawsuits or, or real kind of, um, litigation risks. So I learned a huge amount in the corporate space about how lots of people are really passionate about this space, but sometimes there's just not that either the, time and budget allowed for it or that it just gets deprioritized because there's so much else to do. So I found that uh, like an incredible learning experience. And I also, Tony, I'm looking at you because you know, I got fully burnt out. My doctor Mm. wrote me a sick note and was like, I can't prescribe you a new job on the NHS, but maybe it's time to go find one. (laughs) And I was like, wow, okay. I thought this was my dream job. I was so enjoying it. But over time, I realized that there were certain aspects of the way that things were unfolding that were really challenging, particularly around, well, we'll get into this today about anti-oppressive leadership. But sometimes I Mm -hmm. made the leadership aware of certain things that were happening in the organization. And I kind of experienced retaliation for that. I was made into the problem for naming the problem because people kind of didn't have the the capacity. And I I can see that with with compassion now. They didn't have the capacity to hear what I was saying. And maybe I could have said it more skillfully, but ultimately I didn't feel like I could carry on. So that was when I got my first coach. And Bobby is, uh, I'm a big fan. Hey, Bobby, if you're listening, Um, Mm -hmm. she really helped me to understand that I had played a part in perpetuating this too. And I think that's something that Mm -hmm. we, maybe we all come to eventually is, oh, wow. I was saying yes to everything. I wasn't setting boundaries. I allowed myself to get defensive. You know, I've contributed to this situation too. And that's not to say that there weren't circumstances, but in terms of the things that were in my power to do, there was more that Mm -hmm. I could do to take care of myself better and not to give of myself without stopping, like, you know, until what end. Mm. So um, I worked for another year for a leadership startup and then ended up setting up on my own in 2017. I have not looked back. I've done various things. I've worked as an associate doing all kinds of DEI work all over the world. I've also, I had a partnership business with a wonderful woman called Yasmin Akhtar, the Jew and the Muslim. We went into organizations mm. and we did DEI our way. And wow. that kind of lasted as long as it lasted. We had, we're still very good friends, but the partnership kind of parted ways. Uh, I trained as an integral development coach, which is the same school of coaching that Bobby had certified in. And all of that kind of while navigating baby loss. So I I lost a pregnancy with miscarriage. And then subsequently, my second pregnancy with had to have a termination for medical reasons because the baby um, had not developed. Yeah. So the fact that I can talk about this now without, you know, bawling Mm. my eyes out is really thanks to the support that I reached out and got, which having done it first with Bobby, I was then able to go out and find specialist support and um, really setting some boundaries around who I was spending time with, couldn't spend time with people with young children for a little bit and just really taking care of myself in those years and putting myself first and going, you know what, I really want to do this coaching diploma. So I, I did over two years 
you know, including a baby who's, you know, with me now, Esley, she's three and COVID obviously. So I guess that's a big part of my story too, because I realized that as, you know, the leaders that I was working with either in teams or as individuals, you know, the ways in which we push through things, which really we have no business to be pushing through, you know, like your body and your mind is telling you to stop. Yeah. And at what point do we listen? Actually, can we listen in every day in small increments so we don't have to pick ourselves up off the floor at the end? So um, having experienced burnout and baby loss, we'll get into this, but I'm a big, big proponent of what I call rebel balance, which is how mm. do we sustain ourselves in ways that center what we really need rather than what the world needs from us? Because if we keep giving, the, go- the world's going to keep taking. So yeah, brings me to right now. I have a leadership development practice and culture practice called Rebel Leadership. And why I'm passionate about what I do, Tony, and I know that we, we share this in common, I think, is because I really believe that the only way the world changes is through leaders taking responsibility for something. Yeah. And leaders create change and leaders create leaders. Someone that I used to work with used to say this. It really inspired me. It's how do I create change for myself? How do I create change around me? How do I inspire others to follow me or to be be co-conspirators with me? That's mm-hmm. the only way we create change, really, if we're really honest. So uh, and I know that we can do that on different stages at different scope. But when I work, um, I do work um, quite a bit in, in tech with women in tech. And rebel leadership is all about recognizing that the world is not designed for our flourishing. And if we are women, if we have other marginalized identities that intersect in our experience, then yeah, the world is even more not designed for us to succeed. And rather than leaving it at that and throwing our hands up and going, right, well, that's it, throwing in the towel. Instead, rebel leadership posits, well, let's be rebels about this. Let's push back. Let's figure out what works for us. And let's figure out what the most authentic, balanced and courageous ways of being are. And that's what my all my work is about, whether it's in coaching or masterminds, or the work I do uh, within organizations on culture change. It's really about how do I develop the skills and mindsets I need to spark and sustain positive change and take responsibility uh, rather than throwing my hands up and saying, well, that's the way the world is. Let's make the world that we want to see. Oh, uh, there's so much you've just said that I want to dig into. And I really want to get to the main topic for today, which is anti-oppressive leadership. But I just, I want to call out a few things. Um, The first up is, Thank you so much for sharing your story about losing your babies. I know there are going to be listeners who have experienced that just from a statistics point of view. And I think the more open we can be, the easier it is for each other. We we realize we're not alone. I think far too much of what we experience as women comes about because of loneliness, because we're told to keep things quiet. So thank you so much on behalf of my audience for, for sharing that. I, I just, I can't express that enough. I also actually really like the fact that part of your journey has been that realization of I'm going to I'm going to say something maybe a little bit difficult for some listeners but realizing you don't have to be a victim in this situation. You said that you, you basically that you had some agency but it took somebody pointing that out to you and I this is one of the things I go on and on about. I mean, first of all as leaders, if we don't tackle behavior then we are enabling it, right? starts with things like being anti-racist if if we aren't anti-racist we're actually enabling racism but it goes to every single aspect of leadership i always say to people if you're a, if you aren't tackling toxic behavior you are enabling it but you can take it a step back and say if you aren't doing something for yourself if you, something's happening to you you're not doing anything about it you've got to have the ability to do something about it which is what you and i really focus on with people but 
most of us have more that we can do than I think we realize. And if we don't do that, we are allowing life to happen to us rather than having our own agency to to take action. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. And I think this actually goes to the heart of what are we a rebel for? Like, mm. are we a rebel for, the, for without a cause? Are we just going to rip stuff up because it's fun and burn things down because it's fun? Or, uh, you know, to stick it to the man? Or are we doing it for the sake of something? And when we get clear about what it is we're a commitment to and we're, we, we're doing it for the sake of, then it becomes easier to go, do you know what? I need to slow down or I need to do something to change this. And we always have choice, even if the choice is walking away, you know, that's, that's a choice. And and mm-hmm. the thing that I'm realizing more and more, Tony, I was on a leadership retreat last week and it really hit me what I'm, my rebel, my rebel leadership is for. My rebel leadership, it speaks to the victim point that you mentioned, is for a world of healing, liberation and love. And it's in that order. So if, if we, we might feel that we are victimized, right, that I had a, a manager who told me, that I was the diversity police because I mentioned to him that something he had done had, you know, someone in my team had come to me and made me aware of the impact mm-hmm. of it. And I fed it back. And two months later, he came back with this thing of you're the diversity piece of police and you're watching me all the time. Now at the time I definitely went into like victim mentality. He's got power. I don't, he's a man. I'm a woman. Like I went into this complete dynamic around it, which is completely forgivable. So I think I needed to heal first before I could really get to that agency part. I needed to sit with it with, with Bobby and with myself and really work out, well, what was it that had me respond in that way? Well, yeah. it was hurt and it was it was fear. That's totally okay. That's totally justifiable response. So it's not saying, you know, as you said, some people might find it difficult to hear victim, but what we're not, I don't think what we're saying, uh, either of us, Tony, is, you know, pick yourself up the floor and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's about how do you really pay attention to the hurt? And particularly if we've experienced racism, uh, you know, homophobia, transphobia, there are legitimate ways in which our body is responding even before our brain does to keep us safe. And we can forgive ourselves for that and we can give comfort to our past selves. But then we can make moves for liberation. What am I liberating myself from? I'm liberating myself from caring what someone thinks who doesn't actually share the same values of me. I liberate myself from the expectations of what a working week looks like when I structure my week as an entrepreneur and as a coach that that really tries to live what she preaches. You know, what are we trying to liberate ourselves from? And that takes practice, takes self-awareness, mm-hmm. takes co-conspirators to help us. And then finally, love, which is, you know, there's lots of things that masquerade as love in this world, Tony. There's lots of ways in which, and, and we might get a bit funny about love in an organization, but really what we're talking about is recognizing humans and their dignity. Yeah. I think it's about belonging and having the right to belong, right? Totally. I think we need to be more encompassing with the word. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know whether you see this and when you're working with people, you know, leaders and organizations, you know, maybe there's a kind of balking at at the word love, but there's so many ways that we can expand the definition to things that organizations are already doing. You know, even this whole movement of flexible working, I did an event last week on flexible working. That's kind of loving to say, hey, you've got different needs. Let's meet those needs so that you can show up and do your best work. Yeah, 100%. Oh, I I so agree with that. Well, let's talk about your rebel model. Um, In particular, I want to talk about rebel courage and rebel balance. Obviously, I know a little bit about it. So can you start by explaining briefly what is your rebel model? And then let's dig into courage and and balance in particular. I mean, I'm kind of intrigued by. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. So the rebel leadership model I developed 
kind of laying on top of each other all the different things that I'd learned over the years. And it came mm-hmm. to me that if we are to flourish in a world that's not set up for flourishing, we're going to have to each develop our own rebel ABC, our rebel authenticity, which means being ourselves, relying on our strengths and managing our weaknesses, but not paying so much attention to them, really being carried by our strengths, managing our inner critic. So getting to know our inner critic, giving it self-compassion and love. And there are practices that I teach clients around that. And then also accounting for our privilege and power and really mm-hmm. just figuring out based on who I am in this world, the, who the world has kind of cast me as in a way, I will have relative power and privilege and also relative margin- marginalization. How do I wield that in ways that are kind to myself, but also just and I guess responsible and accountable with others? So that's what rebel authenticity is all about. Rebel balance, which we've already mentioned, is about in a world of hustle culture and productivity porn, how Mm. do we strike the boundaries we need, Mm. prioritize the self-care we need, go at the pace we need to be at our best? And we've been so ingrained from school, from university or, or college or from work that there's a certain pace and there's a certain standard of what professionalism and productivity look like. And Rebel Balance says, hold up. We need to start nourishing ourselves. We need to bring ourselves into center and balance, whether it's eating well, sleeping well, depending on the client I'm working with or the group that I'm working with, rebel balance will look different. But ultimately, it's about making sure that you are grounded and resourced enough to do your best work. Oh, I love that. And then, and I love the word resource, by the way, you know, resource yourself. Go Mm. back to your source, right? Resource yourself. And then... Rebel courage, which I know you're 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 all about, Tony. Which is uh, all about doing the right thing when it's the hard thing. Yeah. So, how do we hold ourselves accountable when we mess up? How do we show vulnerability to listen to people who have experienced harm from us and not shut them down or get defensive or sweep it under the rug? How do we see the change that we want to create? And then how do we go about creating it? And I'm actually in the process, Tony, in the spirit of kind of vulnerability of it's not finished yet, but I'm currently working on some rebel courage archetypes that we can see in ourselves that actually, I I think maybe we tend towards one or more of them, but Mm. actually probably there's a way in which we can practice stepping into all of the, the rebel archetypes for courage. So Really rebel courage is, uh, you know, th- when we talk about uh, anti-oppressive leadership, all of all of the above have in them, built into them, sewn into them, woven into them, the themes of anti-oppressive leadership from my teachers like Prentice Hemphill, Adrienne Marie Brown, Sonia Renee Taylor, so many of these wise, uh, many of them black, queer or trans people who really teach us what it is to lead in a in a way that that rejects a lot of the conventional wisdom and goes back to a more uh, resourced and just and uh, holistic place but also you know i think where where we really the rubber hits the road is rebel courage it's where we actually go out and we start experimenting we mess up we pick ourselves up we dust ourselves off and we build resilience not by pushing through but by really taking the time to learn from our experience yeah and i, I love how you need to have the authenticity and the balance to get to the courage piece, right? We need that harmony within ourselves and we need to have nourished ourselves, as you put it, in order that we can pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and go, oh my God, I I messed up. I've let somebody down. I've done this. I've done that. I've hurt someone. I mean, some of the biggest journeys I've had in my life of when I realized I've hurt somebody. I've, I've never, ever intentionally hurt another human being, right? It's just not within my capacity to do so. And so, and I'm sure most listeners are the same, but it means that when I have hurt somebody, 
the the natural instinct, the the fear response is to hide away and the shame makes us want to not admit it to ourselves or diminish it in some way. And that is not fair on the person that has experienced that. So with this model, I would love for you to explain to us how does how does this work in practice? What do you see the people who need to work on their rebel courage? What do they need to recognize? What do they need to overcome? How can they start taking action? Yeah, such a good question. So what you mentioned, Tony, about your fear responses to hide away, I think the first thing we can do is really just to recognize what our fear or stress response, fear, stress or duress, you can call it, Mm. response. So there's ways in which our bodies have a default mode or a conditioned tendency to not want danger, not want things that cause us pain and not want things that cause us cognitive dissonance, like I'm a good person. How could I possibly hurt someone? Oh, the impact has not lined up to my intention. Ah, So if you're hearing this and you're already cringing, I really encourage you to notice where you're cringing. Is it in your throat? Is it in your belly? Is it in your chest? Do you find yourself getting antsy or do you find yourself getting really still? Get wise to whether your default move is to go towards the person, either to like explain or Mm -hmm. defend or to fix immediately and apologize. Like, you know, that's my move is towards, I'll suddenly like fill up the space with apologies and blah, 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 blah. Or if it's like you said, Tony, away, which is like, oh gosh, let's talk about this later, aka never, you know, how do I sweep this under the carpet? Or is it actually a kind of dissociative, you leave your body, you've left the room, you're not present. It's a freeze kind of response. So there's there's ways in which this this is the reality for all of us. But if we are to be really authentic, courageous and vulnerable leaders, then we've got to get wise to how our bodies are hijacking our brains with the best of intentions to keep us safe. So that's my first thing that I would say that I work on with my leaders a lot on noticing that. And remember, it might be that it's from the outside. So someone's giving you this feedback and it's kind of provoking you. Could also be that it's your own inner critic that's provoking that response. Oh my God, I can't believe you did that, Tony. That's appalling blah 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 blah, and then it's kind of amplified so there's mm-hmm. part partly a responding to what's actually happening and partly a responding to something that's in your own head and as you said you can go down a guilt shame spiral so number one figure out what your fear stress or duress response is two is really to get familiar with what happens when you go into a guilt shame spiral like noticing breaking the guilt mm-hmm. shame because guilt is you know i've done something bad and shame is oh gosh that means i am bad I'm a terrible human being. And particularly women are actually socialized even before they've thought about whether they are, in fact, they have actually done something. Women have been socialized to take on, you know, a lot of blame in a lot of situations, including for, you know, our own abuse, frankly. So we also have to get wise to that the way as women leaders, we might instantly apologize or instantly go to a shame and guilt place, but actually it's breaking our ability to be accountable. Actually, by apologizing for things that we're not responsible for or that we don't understand, let's put it that way, Mm. we are not actually owning our impact and we are maybe giving away our power. So how can we stay with the guilt shame and just hang out there and do some fact finding, do some asking, do some buying ourselves some time in order to really ground ourselves so that we can really respond to the person in front of us? Yeah. Oh, 100%. I I mean, this as well really underpins what I want to get to next, which is being anti-oppressive, because I think a lot of what you're saying is there's the, there's the understanding yourself, but then there's also doing the hard thing, right? There is recognizing that this is really uncomfortable and now I'm going to have to do something really hard, like holding space for somebody rather than trying to, I mean, I used to fall into the trap all the time of, 
explaining why I'd done something, even though it was wrong, explaining how I got to that place. The person who was reporting that, you know, what I've just done is not right, doesn't need an explanation. They need me to stop and I need to give them their space so that they can emote. And that was, I mean, I now recognize that I I, I do this. It's a tendency of mine. I either shy away or I try and justify my own existence. And that's not what the person in front of me needs. And quite frankly, I'm the one that's messed up. So I don't deserve to justify my own existence in that situation. And that's really, really hard. It's doing that really hard thing. And I think that leads beautifully. I'm, I'm thinking of situations where I've messed up from a DEI perspective. And I don't think anybody out there that can say they haven't messed up from a DEI perspective. Even if you're passionate about DEI like you and I are, I just think it's human nature to mess up. That doesn't mean it's acceptable, by the way, listeners. Just because everybody does it doesn't make it acceptable. <laughs> it means there's a lot of work for us all to do. <laughs> but I think that really leads beautifully into if we're going to do the anti-oppressive work, we need to be working on doing the hard, getting that hard stuff out there and, and getting uncomfortable. So there's a there's a long-winded way of saying, can you explain to us why you use anti-oppressive? You and I had a conversation before and I'm totally stealing it as a phrase. I, I love it. I wish I'd heard this 10 years ago. Can you explain anti-oppressive for the audience? And then tell us a little bit about how that links in with rebel courage. Yeah, I mean, you've modeled it so well, Tony, that defensive response and not meeting the needs of the person in front of Mm -hmm. us. And there's ways in which the world is structured such that I heard it said really well a couple of weeks ago is that um, uh, it's almost like there's a ramp down which rolls like feedback and repercussions and things when there's a power differential stuff rolls much more easily downhill than you Mm. can push it uphill. So that's why we see, for example, like what happened to me, you know, being being made the problem when you call out the problem. This happens for a lot of black women in the workplace that they're called angry or they're called over-emotional or detached, you know, and aloof. Well, they can't win, can they? Because there's a way in which they receive feedback like that, but they can't, but the feedback that they're feeding back and going, well, you're not enabling me. You are putting barriers in my way that's not heard or acted upon and in fact is used weaponized against them so I guess when I say anti-oppressive leadership I say it in the tradition of a wider field which much predates my work which is about how do we recognize that there are systems at play that uphold this stuff how do we recognize that white supremacy and patriarchy and you know transphobia and uh, heteronormativity these systems are designed to keep going and to keep power located in certain places. That's they, They've got all the mechanisms in place to just keep on going till the end. Mm. And, you know, let's say unregulated capitalism, you know, extractive capitalism is the same. And, you know, as we wake ourselves up to this reality, we can just hold our hands up and say, well, you know, it just is what it is. But who, who gets to say it, it, it is what it is? You know, when we have relative privilege, then we can totally do that. I, as a generally white passing woman can say that, but who, at whose expense? At the expense of my, you know, Yasmin, my Muslim, you know, co-founder, for example, who um, at the time wore hijab and was a brown Muslim from working class origins from Kashmir. So there's ways in which I think in practice, it's got to be about owning our, our own privilege. And what that really means is decentering ourselves when society has by default centered us. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say that again. Decentering ourselves. I don't mean like being off center. I mean 
putting ourselves to the side for a minute because maybe we've been taking up too much space because society has allowed us to take up too much space. Um, And what that might look like in a conversation is really doing a lot of listening, a lot of repeating back and validating, a lot of holding your own feelings. Like we need to build our capacity to, I, I talk to people about, you know, the chest or the belly where a lot of feelings need to live and how can they, we, we trust that our bodies can hold them mm. long enough to listen and then we can take it and offload elsewhere. Like you said, the person in front of you doesn't need to hear you self-justify and give your, you know, 10 reasons why. So, you know, I think that's the really the first step. And then it comes about, which is like creating an action plan, really. There's a model I use in Rebel Courage, which is the five A's of accountability, which is number one, be available. Like be like hold on to your own feelings and be available, hold that space. Then it's acknowledge what really the harm is that you have done or the system is doing and that you're participating in. Uh apologize. Like apologize for the specific thing that you did for the impact that you had, however unintentional that might have been with no, you know, and I did it because like, just let the apology sit. Amends. So this is the bit that organizations often don't get and um, might be a bit controversial now, but you know, the way in which the black founder of a charity was treated at Buckingham Palace and they did the apology Mm -hmm. for the media, but amends were not made. And actually she had to step back from her role because um, she was totally burnt out by all the media pressure and all of this. And actually a charity had to stop operating because of racism is what happened. Yeah. But no amends, like Buckingham Palace did not make the amends, is my opinion. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm sure I'll get DMs about that one. But that's how I that's how I see it. I agree with you. I thought the way that was handled, for those of you not in the UK, there was something that hit the news here a couple of months ago where some um, a black founder, female founder of a of a charity was invited to Buckingham Palace and was treated appallingly badly, in my opinion hit the media and it took actually quite a lot for the palace to even admit that there was a in my opinion again I felt like they took quite a lot of pressure for them even to admit that there was a problem and it especially what happened I think if you google this you'll get the whole story but like I, I felt like what happened was so obviously racist it's not like one of those things where people have a debate about it it's 2023 is that racism is that not it was so completely racist. Um, it, it, it kind of blew me away that like it, it took so much effort for even an apology to be made. So yeah, I, I do agree with you on that one. And hey, if anybody wants to challenge me on that, like go ahead. <laughs> and I, I say this being completely ready for anybody to make me aware of my own impact. Yeah. But that but the way in which we can use these these examples to be like, hey, this is this is what's happening. It was Ngozi Ngozi Fulani was her name. I I, I apologize, I forgot mm. her name. But yeah. there's there's um so there's amends, and then finally, which you, as you say, Tony, is action for the future. Is like, how am I gonna? act mm-hmm. how am i going to dismantle certain systems that allowed this to happen how am i going to you know a lot of organizations will kind of plop in a like three-hour dei training as their kind of amends and their act for the future and it's like hey maybe we need to do a massive appraisal of the whole mm-hmm. system and really think about not just what behaviors we need to be embodying but also what structures mm-hmm. and what policies we need to put in place how we 
respond to and how we conduct the whistleblowing function in our organizations such that people who report the problem don't become the problem, which is an age old mm-hmm. story. So yeah, so I feel like rebel courage is really uh, entwined with accountability, but also vulnerability, the ability to not always have the answers, not always be right, not always have it together, um, but to do right by mm-hmm. the person who's sitting in front of you based on your impact, not your intention. Yeah, I mean, and I love this so much. We we could talk about it all day. One thing I do want the audience to hear because I think, yet again, there's another topic that I'm bringing on the podcast with an amazing guest and former Debbie right in front of me here, where I'm we're we're saying to you, this is something that is not once and done. You can't just do a course and you're fixed. And I think this applies to all of leadership. And I think part of the resistance, a lot of leaders or managers who are hoping to become better leaders have is. But I, I've got a full-time job. How, what, I'm supposed to do this as well. And there's a hundred other things that Tony talks about every week on the podcast. Here's the thing. Leadership is the job. If you are aiming to be anything other than a thought leader, maybe you're an individual contributor who's aiming to be a thought leader, but even then you want to influence people. But if you want to be a managerial leader, your job is leadership more than it is the technical stuff. You've got the people reporting into you to do the technical work. Your job is leadership. That might be strategic leadership. It might be people leadership. It there's all sorts of different kinds, but leadership requires inclusion. It requires all the skills I talk about in the podcast. And you wouldn't stop doing your technical work. We all, like, you know, my audience, like maybe, maybe you can like me, you're a full-time programmer. If you don't use it, you lose it, right? So you're using it all the time. You're always working on it. You're always researching it. We've got to treat leadership the same way. Would you, would you agree with that, Debbie? Is this something that we all need to be working on all the time and that we need to treat it as seriously as we do the stuff we did in college, the technical stuff? Absolutely. I mean, when you think that if your job as a leader is to maximize the potential of everybody in your team, just Mm -hmm. think of all that. I call it a a waste of good rocket fuel. That's why I call it like all that rocket fuel that is not being tapped because people are disengaged. People don't believe that they are truly seen and valued for who they are, maybe because of you or maybe because of others in the team. Once you start to see the world in this way, you start to see it everywhere. And you Mm -hmm. notice the way in which, say, maybe, you know, a queer colleague kind of avoids talking about their partner because there's certain people on the team who make jokes about, you know, about gay people or, you know, you just start to spot it everywhere. And it's your, you have the power and the influence as a leader to be able to set the tone, to be able to say what is and isn't acceptable, um, to also go one mm-hmm. level up and challenge maybe your, um, the leaders who, who manage you and who, who set the tone above you to really look and see. I, I'm not a big one for the business case for DEI, but I am convinced that there is so much untapped potential because we're not addressing these mm-hmm. dynamics. We know it. So how, how can we as leaders take responsibility for it? And you're absolutely right. In terms of the ongoing learning, one way in which we can do that, which is kind of, uh, maybe simple but not easy is to for example really start reading books and consuming media by people from marginalized identities I almost exclusively now do that quite quite, it started as an intentional practice and now I just gravitate towards it quite naturally I just Mm. finished reading um Octavia Butler's Kindred which is phenomenal I really recommend Octavia Butler if you're into science fiction for example why not read science fiction by a black woman you know you know that is something I've never thought of and I love sci-fi so thank you I'm writing that down (laughs) yeah wow Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, I've never thought of that. And this is, this is kind of the point, right? We're never done on this work. I care deeply about it. I know I've got a lot of work to do around my um, inherent prejudices and my unconscious biases. I know I've got a lot of work to do. 
And I am consciously working on this. And yeah, I had never thought to look for a non-white male sci-fi author. So thank you. <laughs> no, it's it's fine. And even just thinking about the things that you enjoy, whether it's series, mm. whether it's uh, movies, whether it's even sports, I don't know, like finding a way to, you know, to make it justice oriented. Like how can I shift my lens to where it belongs, which is where maybe it hasn't been in the past. You know, I've been doing a lot of learning about um, neurodivergence, which is an area I didn't really know much about. And, you know, this I, I, I confess again with my vulnerability that it's something I'm still trying to puzzle out where yeah. how I can use my relative privilege in a world not designed for people who are neurodivergent. But ultimately, I'm spending my time like reading content creators from those identities. LinkedIn is awash with amazing content creators who do such great work educating for free folks, but then, you know, also buy their books and uh, get get immersed in their voices because it does change us when we start hearing those stories. I, I spoke to a friend who was really, who's really not into this world at all. And he said that he really got into watching Pose and it totally gave him a window into the trans world, obviously a very specific window at a specific time, but really understanding a lot of the trauma of the trans community, a lot of people who were lost to AIDS and, and you know, the, the kind of whole generation of elders who were lost. It really resonated for him. And you know what? I will put my hand on my heart and say, I was surprised because I, I just, you know, that's my own judgment that I didn't necessarily, mm. but actually let's not also assume that because of pe who people are, they're not going to be interested in this stuff. Let's assume that human beings are a priori interesting. <laughs> so let's get interested <laughs> in all human beings, not just the human beings who've been in the spotlight thus far. Oh, I love that so much. Well, I mean, this is, must be one of the longest interviews I've done. I try and keep <laughs> these short and sweet, but so we haven't, because I could talk to you about this all day. It's such an important topic, but let's move on to the quick fire round. Although one of my favorite questions, which is about your work, you might already have a share with us. But let's start with my all-time favorite question. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, so yes. <laughs> um, in uh, this previous organization, there was a woman who I had really looked up to as a mentor. Um, but she said to me, you know, Debbie, I just think that you focus too much on values. Like, unless you go work for a charity and make peanuts, you're never going to be able to make money doing that. So, you know, it's up to you, really. And I'm like, Haha, I don't have to choose between values and making money. I'm doing both. <laughs> 100%. I'm right there with you. I think we need to actually talk about that more as women who are making money and living by our values. We need to normalize that. We really, really do. So, oh. What a piece of advice, hey? Well, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Mm. So it's not a, a piece of advice. It's a principle that came from my Jewish youth work days, which is, it's called Dugmai Sheet, which means leading by personal example. And it means leading in such a way as you would want other people to follow. So who can I be and become such that other people will want to follow me and do the same and therefore create the world that we want to see? I love that. I love that so much. Yeah, I love that. Be the, be the change you want to see in the world, right? Um, what is the last book you read? Have you already told us that? Oh, no. Um, let me think. Oh, I'm actually reading right now Permission to Speak by my dear friend Samara Bay. It is a phenomenal uh, reader on how to reclaim what power sounds like. It's a for any women out there who are looking to uh, speak powerfully, but not in a way that imitates kind of traditional JFK or Martin Luther mm. King ways of speaking. You know, those are fabulous, but also there's so many other ways to sound powerful. So yeah, Samara Bay, Permission to Speak. I'm absolutely loving it. I'm nearly at the end and I'm loving it. Oh, love that. Uh, we will make sure our, um, details for that book are in the show notes if you're interested. 
<laughs> um, mindset moment. At the end of every episode, as listeners know, I like to give a mindset tip, um, particularly around the topics so and maybe anti-oppression or rebel courage. What is your favorite mindset tip for leaders that the listeners can take away today? Okay. So I'll say something I haven't said yet because I talked about guilt and shame and I talked about the fear, stress, and duress. I want to offer you, is it a question of strategy or is it a question of integrity? So when we are puzzling out a problem, we are trying really hard to solve something and we're really tired. <laughs> we're really just tired. Mm -hmm. We have to ask ourselves and be really honest with ourselves and have co-conspirators who can reflect the mirror back to us. If it's a question of strategy, try a bunch of stuff. You know, try something different, get strategies, get your coach to, to bounce ideas with you, come up with some strategies, test them, come back. But if it's actually a question of integrity, uh, like it was for me in that one organization, it's like, actually, I can't go on. Like, I, this, this space can't handle me at, at my best. Therefore, I need to take myself somewhere else. Then that's a question of integrity. And I actually wrote a blog post, a poem about this for a client who was going through this, that she, she inspired it in me. So I can put it in the show notes, but That'd it's really when we have that moment of, do I carry on or not? The question is, is this a question of strategy or is this a question of integrity? Please do share that with us and we'll make sure that goes in the show notes. Um, that would be beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. How can people connect with you, find out more about what you do and generally like share your wisdom? <laughs> Well, I am on LinkedIn. That's where I hang out on these internet streets. I'm there um, most of the time. Find me Debbie Danon, um, and I would love to connect with you. Uh, my title on there is Organizational Cycle Breaker. So um, you will find me. The other place you can find me is every Friday I send out a rebel up uh, email to my co-conspirators in this world. Any leaders who are looking to cultivate rebel authenticity, balance and courage, I send out tips. I send out book recommendations. I also share exclusive opportunities to learn with me live. So feel free to sign up. We'll put it in the comments. And also you can find me hanging out in what's called Coven, which is the Coven Collective. You may have heard the episode with Gar Samandari or you may be about to. So Gar Samandari and I uh, and Alicia Harris have set up a community for women to, of all identities and all lived experiences to build the lives we desire and the world we all deserve. And those two can both be true. So if you are interested in really committing to a life of getting what you deserve and also building the world we all deserve, then join us in Coven Collective. We'll also put the, the link in the comments. We do workshops and we have a, we're building a community space as well. Um, it feels so important to me, Tony, coming on this podcast to speak with you and women who are really blazing a trail. And by even by spending time listening to this podcast, they're showing how dedicated mm -hmm. they are to their own development. So yeah, I would just love to hang out with you. Come and find me. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. Um, and we will make sure all those links are in the show notes. And it's actually really funny. They, I think by the time this episode airs, they will have heard Gaz's episode. But funnily enough, I had no idea that you two knew each other. <laughs> I, I met both of you independently. And then, and I was like, you both need to come on the show. And then like, actually you collaborate. It's kind of, it's a funny world. It's a beautiful world. Have you any final thoughts you would like to leave the listeners with? Just to say, keep going. The world mm. needs rebels. The world needs all kinds of rebels. If you never thought of yourself as a rebel, I never did either. It's about going, what are we here for? And what are we not here for? And what we're not here for, how can we start to develop ourselves in new ways, be authentic, balanced, and courageous in ways that the world maybe isn't ready for? And then we make space for others to do the same. That's the beauty of it. Once we started to do it, it makes it possible for others too. 
That's beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you also for supporting this podcast. You are sponsoring today's episode. This podcast is my love letter to women in tech. It is a free resource and it's only possible because of people like you. Um, So I am forever grateful. And I think my audience is too. I think they've learned so much from you today. So thank you. And if you're listening to this and you're enjoying this podcast, you enjoyed today's episode, please do me and this show a favor. Help us reach more women. Share it with somebody who you think would benefit listening to it. And do us a little favor by subscribing in your favorite podcast player or on YouTube. That really actually helps us grow our audience and means that we can bring you more free, great content. Thank you so much. But listeners, remember, until next time, stay on your tech leadership game, follow your dreams, because the world really does need that uniqueness that you bring as a leading woman in tech.